0: Hey, listeners, we know you're listening, so why don't you visit us on iTunes and leave us a comment? We really want to know what you think. And if you'd like to send us a message directly or have questions, you can always email us at bonnyandmod at gmail.com. Their paths crossed like two hot wires.
1: We are just about the friendliest folks you'd ever want to meet.
0: That's Bonnie. I'm sorry, I was looking for Maude.
1: Every- has the right to make an ass out of themselves. You can't let the world judge you too much. That woman! She took my car! This is Bonnie and Maud, the film podcast, with Xenia Yaroche
0: and Eleanor Kagan.
1: Hi, welcome to Bonnie and Maud. I'm Eleanor Kagan. And I'm Xenia Yaroche. And uh, we start today's show with a bit of a plug, so I hope you'll excuse us, um, but I swear it's relevant.
0: Along with XO Jane, Bonnie and Maude is co-hosting a film series at 92Y Tribeca.
1: Yeah, it's called Too Good to Be Forgotten, and we've picked a bunch of films that we loved as girls growing up that still mean a lot to us. Movies that
0: really have stood the time. Movies that have really stood... What is the phrase? The test stood the test of time. Movies that have really stood the test of time and that we
1: want to revisit as grown-ups. So the films in the series we did now and then um, in February. The next one coming up is Mermaids on Thursday, March 14th, which is actually what we're going to be talking about today in the show. Um, Coming up after that in April, we have Slums of Beverly Hills. We have *Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion in May and Bring It On in June.
0: And you can find out more details at bonnieandma.com or on our Facebook page.
1: Alright, so plug time is over, um, (laughs) but we just wanted to do that to give a little context to why we're talking about mermaids today. Um, So why did we pick mermaids for the series? Because it's...
0: Because it's unlike anything I've seen before, and because I, I remember it... I feel like every movie we start talking about, like, I remember it from my childhood. I remember it from my adolescence as being
1: really odd. Well, those movies tend to be really meaningful because we're seeing them at a very formative time in our lives. Um, It's probably no coincidence that the characters in the movies are also going through this formative adolescent time in their life. So we connect with them. We can see the world through their eyes and they end up being so memorable.
0: True. I I also watching this movie made me realize I I mean I don't know if I should jump into this but uh Winona Ryder is like our proxy through so many movies like starting from childhood um and going into adolescence I like I'm surprised how many other women connect with Winona Ryder in their kind of movie memories and I think she really stands out in this movie in particular.
1: Yeah, well, we should say that *Mermaids* is a early '90s drama comedy about family. Um, it stars Winona Ryder as a 15-year-old girl. Um, her little sister is Christina Ricci in, in her uh, first role. Yeah, her first uh, on-screen role, and she's adorable, still has the same huge, like, pumpkin head? I was gonna say saucer eyes. (laughs) And of course, um, their mother is played by Cher, Mm -hmm. who's incredible. It takes place in the 60s. Uh, Cher sort of plays
0: herself very free-spirited. She often... I don't know. She, they. Part of the reason they move around a lot, which is part of the plot, is she has a lot of affairs and she doesn't care about being in a steady relationship.
1: Yeah, she's sort of the textbook eccentric mother role. So mm-hmm. there's a lot about mothers and daughters in this film um, and a lot of mother-daughter sparring. And the scenes between Winona Ryder and Cher are so uh, evocative. And I'm sure one of the reasons that we all identified with Winona is that You know, maybe it represents a lot of our relationships with our own moms, where it's, like, just being in your mother's presence is automatically embarrassing, especially if there's other people around. Yeah, I mean, like, looking at this movie now, I think Cher is so cool,
0: but... (laughs) She's the best. I can't imagine being a daughter to that. Like, that would be frustrating.
1: Yeah. I mean, and Winona Ryder, writer. My keyword
0: on this podcast. Like, how many times have I said frustrating?
1: <laughs> Are you trying to tell
0: me something? Holy moly. <laughs> um, I was gonna, I mean, like, I have definitely referenced my mother way too many times on this podcast. But part of the reason I probably connect to this movie is I grew up with a single mother who was no share. <laughs> But she was definitely young and hip, and uh, she always dressed in an interesting way. And the thing is, we did move around a lot, and um, it wasn't because of the affairs she was having, as far as I know. (laughs) But it definitely, as much as I enjoyed it, was also confusing to me that she got to make the calls um, on what seemed to be like a whim to me.
1: How many times did you guys move?
0: Are you kidding? (laughs) A lot. It was, uh, I really didn't go to the same school for more than a year for a long time. And then as a kid, yeah, a lot. So that kind of closeness that sort of results in, not hate, but like, you're so close to this person that. I don't know like there's uh, friction is definitely I,
1: I get it. <laughs> Watching Mermaids did it feel very realistic to your own situation?
0: Um. I mean I I probably connected with my mom more than Winona does with hers. Uh, there are much more different people in Mermaids um, but I like that in Mermaids we do get to see a girl who A lead character who isn't the typical, like, promiscuous cool girl, but someone who is more introverted and is struggling with the fact that she is starting to grow up and is starting to have some sort of, like, sexual feelings, Mm -hmm. but that's not natural for her.
1: Yeah. First off, Winona Ryder's character is Charlotte Flax, and um, the way that she rebels against her mom is to become this devout Catholic, even though they were raised Jewish. She looks at nuns like they're rock stars, mm-hmm. um, and it she... just so happens that they, you know, their new house in uh, in New England happens to be down the road from a convent. And she sort of spies on the nuns. But while she does that, the things she thinks about are what color do the what color bras do the nuns wear, and do they still wear their underwear in the shower? And she lusts after the older boy who works at the convent and she seems to have the, you know, the classic Catholic guilt Mm -hmm. over thinking all these sexual thoughts and feeling these sexual urges. But I also loved that because so rarely do we get to see the horniness of a teenage girl, like we see so many horny teenage boys in movies, and girls have those feelings too. You know, her inner monologue about like, you know, wanting to make out and wanting to have sex and, like, mm-hmm. thinking about sex all the time. But, like, in a totally natural
0: way, not yeah. just...
1: not in, like, a freaky way.
0: Yeah. I, I feel like when I was a kid growing up, a lot of... I don't know, I'm thinking more of books, but I, I feel a lot of the role models, even, like, in girl magazines, there was an assumed sexuality and, like... Everything I saw, like girls were already comfortable with being sexy, and I remember there were a lot of references to like drugs and smoking and drinking, and like all of that was normal and assumed, and I am someone who could not connect with that. Mm-hmm. And so seeing Charlotte as being more reserved was really refreshing to me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I've, I've been wanting that role model. Like, not role model, but, like, that character.
1: Right. I mean, it's interesting to call her a role model because she does make some very poor choices (laughs) in this movie. But they're not unlike the choices that a 15-year-old would make. I mean, there's the scene where she gets her little sister drunk and goes up to the convent to the cute boy um, and, you know, leaves her drunk drunk what, seven-year-old sister, six-year-old sister, um, near the riverbed while she goes up and has sex with him. And uh, the little sister almost drowns, which, by the way, was like a very Hollywood-esque subplot that I kind of, it's really not my favorite part of the movie. I almost wanted to just, like, fast-forward through it because it's so belabored. But, you know, and then she's okay. It's, It's a forced conflict when there's so much more interesting,
0: quieter sort of, yeah, drama in the story.
1: Right, and it leads to a beautiful scene between Cher and Winona Ryder that is kind of hard to watch, where they're finally saying what needs to be said and asking the difficult questions, Mm -hmm. and they're talking about, you know, who Charlotte's father was and Mm -hmm. why he left. Um, but, you know... And their roles. The fact that Charlotte, in a lot of
0: ways, I mean, they're sort of co-parenting Christina Ricci's character. Kate. Kate. Um, and own Ryder feels like she is the grown-up in the family and that Cher isn't pulling her weight.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and so when you're thinking about a 15-year-old feeling like she has to be the adult and then making really poor choices, mm-hmm. um, it felt very truthful. And I, I I can see where you're coming from as seeing her as a role model. Just something different. I, It's
0: just not the sort of, teen character that I'm used to and mm-hmm. saw very much of growing up. Like, I don't know. I keep going back to like, I, I was actually recently flipping through my old uh, teen magazines like Cosmo Girl and whatever else. And it's it's just weird. Like everyone is wearing a ton of makeup and all the celebrities are these 20, 30 year old guys who are supposed to be attractive to, what, like, a 15-year-old? I just found that very confusing.
1: You know, it's funny that you bring that up because the age difference between uh, Winona Ryder's character okay, good and point. the cute older guy, she was 15, he was supposed to be, what, 26? And when you're reading, like, teen magazines like Cosmo Girl and mm-hmm. 17, all the guys in that magazine were, like, in their mid-20s and you're 15 and you're flipping through and, you know, gazing at them like sex objects. And this sort of follows that lust to its logical conclusion. Like, what if a 26-year-old deflowers a 15-year-old? And watching that scene again, uh, I felt pretty icky about it. Like, mm. I know it was consensual, but, like, you know, she's 15, he's 26, I'm 26. I could not imagine having sex with a 15-year-old. <laughs> that really freaks me out. What about I... a 15-year-old Winona rider? <laughs> <laughs> well, when you put it that way... <laughs>
0: I, I like that he was sort of a non-character. Like, we saw him as a cute boy, and there wasn't a lot more to him. Mm-hmm. Like, it was really about the women of the story and how they felt and related to him, um, which was mostly just admire him.
1: Well, and he sort of does play like the resident hunk, but meanwhile, mm-hmm. and we haven't even mentioned him at all, we have yes. Bob Hoskins, who is a much deeper character. And Bob Hoskins plays a divorcee who, you know, lives in town and starts dating
0: Cher. And works at a shoe store. So, like, not, like, a big guy who makes a lot of money who makes up for the fact that he's short and funny looking. (laughs)
1: Can we talk about... The charisma of bob hoskins because i don't find him attractive but in this film and i haven't seen another movie with him in quite some time um i think i need to rewatch who framed roger rabbit um but what is it about him that is so charismatic and so attractive and you see you know this short stocky hairy balding dude with you know a glamazonian gorgeous woman like Cher. but it like makes sense because their personalities are so in sync I don't know. I loved him you, in this movie. Do
0: you think part of it is just the fact that Cher becomes receptive to him um, and that makes him more attractive? Like, I definitely found him very, very charming, but there was definitely that moment where they first meet at the shoe store where there's a little bit of flirting and I'm trying to see how Cher is going to respond to him. And if she had rejected him, I would have been like, eh, he's just another schlub. Mm-hmm. But the fact that she a woman who could choose anyone is like, okay, I'm into this guy, makes him more attractive.
1: Right. I mean, he also has that confidence exuding from him where he knows what he wants and what he wants is Cher.
0: Yeah. Which, Yeah, maybe the fact that he aspires and, like, dares to
1: try to pick up Cher and take her on a date. I'm not saying that I think... Attractiveness levels need to be even in relationships, but I just was trying to figure out why I, as a viewer, find Bob Hoskins very charming <laughs> as someone who I am not attracted to. But I, in this movie, it's like, oh, he does make a really great boyfriend and possibly a great husband. Um, something else I wanted to ask you about, though, Ksenia, is the relationship between Bob Hoskins and Cher progresses to the point where she starts pushing him away as he gets closer to her family and starts you know building trust in her kids Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of pressure between them you know there's the scene at the new year's party where he's saying marry me and she's like no he's like well live with me and she's like no and it's like on one hand we're like Cher stop pushing him away we want you to be together but on the other hand I'm sort of like well Lou his character's name is Lou I'm like Lou don't pressure her to do something she doesn't want to do it's like yeah. you're rooting for both of them to get what they want
0: absolutely in that way this movie bleeds into another genre which is the romantic comedy and it, that plot line is definitely unlike something i've seen elsewhere where we don't have to have a big scene about her overcoming that mm-hmm um, like that's not the key plot point. Mm-hmm. How they end up together
1: and the obstacles yeah. that are
0: preventing them from. Yeah, wanting they just together. they start dating, and that and that's what it is. And then it's about how her family, who has been a very solid unit where she is the ruler, is now adjusting to this new person, and how he is helping them change into something new.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think the most. Yeah, the most telling aspect of that was the whole sitting down to dinner mm-hmm. thing. Like food plays this really funny role in this movie where Cher doesn't cook, she makes hors d'oeuvre and finger food. Um and by the end of the movie they're sitting down to dinner as a family. And that is this sort of, you know, kind of obvious motif that goes through, but like I can see why they're you know, the filmmaker Richard Benjamin was relying on that as sort of a, mm-hmm. a telling motif that you can follow it's but the, the
0: fact that Hoskins, um, Hoskins causes the transformation—that he's the one who brings like hearty food and eating meals together into this family, as opposed to the female character mm-hmm. um, who sort of treats food as an accessory. Like she makes pretty food that isn't very filling, whereas he cooks. Meals, which are meant to be shared together as a family.
1: Right, right. He kind of has the uh, traditional homemaker role.
0: Exactly, which I found interesting.
1: What did you think of this movie's treatment of religion?
0: Well, for that, I turned uh, to the Catholic Church review of this film, which felt, uh, how did they phrase it? Um, Charlotte's legitimate pursuit of religion was mishandled or, like... It was, like, really weird phrasing. Um, I'm not going to pull it up. But, like, I feel like this is the second movie in a row, Carrie last time, and now this, where religion is a very important aspect. But being an atheist, I don't know how much I can speak to that. (laughs) I just, I thought it was an obsession. I thought it was a hobby, just like a kid has any hobby. Like, you know, I I was interested in Buddhism in high school, but... I don't know that it was actual religious thinking or pursuit. I I think it's just, like, you need something to focus on. And, like, I, I thought it was very similar to Kate's love for swimming. Like, you need something to look forward to and think about.
1: Charlotte is still very much figuring herself out throughout this movie and at this point in her life. And she seems to turn to religion... Um, and Catholic- well, Catholicism specifically. She seems to turn to Catholicism as um, Cliff's notes for how she's supposed to go through life. Um, That's it, a really good point. It seems she really relies on, you know, the ideas of give and take, kind of karmic retribution. When mm-hmm. she does something bad, something bad is done onto her. Um, there's one point she thinks that God has made her pregnant because she kissed you know, Joe, the the hottie, the neighbor hottie. Mm-hmm. Um, we're repeatedly seeing Charlotte's faith shaken when things don't work out the way that she expects them to. Well, she doesn't get
0: punished. Maybe that's part of it mm-hmm. is there is no real retribution. Um, and maybe part of her turning to religion is just the fact that she doesn't have any clear rules from her mother. So she wants those guidelines and religion provides that for her.
1: I guess another big part of that whole, you know, having her faith shaken comes when JFK is assassinated, because remember, this does take place in 1963, and she sort of is figuring out her role, and then JFK gets killed, and there's a scene where she's walking around town, and all the adults are sobbing, and there's a group of kids who sort of are unaware of the situation, they're playing, and she makes this remark where, like, she feels she is... Surrounded by children, and she is the only grown up. So, I think her religiousness is very tied in with her trying to act like a grown up and trying to assume this grown up hmm. role by trying to understand these complicated rules.
0: Hmm. That's a really good point. Thanks.
1: <laughs> so for people that are attending the screening in new york um on thursday march 14th of mermaids at the 92 y tribeca as part of our too good to be forgotten series um what should they be looking out for Pumpkinheads. oh yeah
0: i guess what i like about this movie is how what i really love about this movie is how it's a collection of moments that you know, it doesn't really amount to one big lesson or one big, all right, that's the resolution. It's just these moments between people, including Christina Ricci on the floor wearing a jack-o'-lantern on her head. And um, it's perfect, and it's weird, and like that. that's totally a thing a kid would do.
1: I guess my favorite weird moment of that was when Winona Ryder hugs joe the older boy for the first time she tastes his leather jacket she like sticks her tongue out and licks it wow um i guess what i would ask people to maybe take away from this movie is the idea that this story is somebody's story or a lot of people's stories and even if it isn't it calls to mind a lot of things that you learn growing up you know like wrestling with your own sexuality and with your parents and your siblings and moving to a new town and experiencing all these new things for the first time, um, including religion, including school, including love. I appreciate the way all of this was portrayed in Mermaids. Mm -hmm.
0: It's a very quiet movie about teenage obsession that handles it in a very naturalistic way. It's, you know, all those things that you loved and could not live without when you were 15 and 16. And it, like, gives you that little bit of spark and reminds you what it's like to feel those intense emotions that, like, I wish I could still feel as a (laughs) 20-something.
1: And I just don't. And even if these obsessions are brief because teenagers are fickle, you know, by the end of the movie, she no longer cares about Catholicism, she's into Greek myths. Um, Even though these things are brief doesn't mean that they're any less meaningful thinking about your first love as a teenager, even though it is in no way the type of mature love that you find growing up when you're a little bit older, doesn't mean that those feelings weren't totally valid. And that's, you know, something that I love about teen movies is it really tries to, good teen movies, I should say, um, yes, really try to show those emotions as something valuable and worth appreciating and worth validating rather than dismissing them to a young age. Um, So we hope you'll all join us for the screening of Mermaids at 92Y Tribeca on Thursday, March 14th. I hope you keep all these plugs. Um, I'm gonna. (laughs) Why do you think I'm saying them? So um, something we wanted to try at the end of the podcast uh, this time was to uh, make a couple recommendations of things that we've read and seen and experienced um, that we hope you might check out. Because what's yours?
0: Watching those brief scenes of Christina Ricci swimming and mermaids sort of tied in with this book that I'm reading, Swimming Studies, by Leanne Chapton, And I'm not someone who has loved swimming particularly, but it's a really perfect kind of visual and poetic accompaniment or, I guess, explanation of what it is to love to swim. The writer, used to be a competitive swimmer and, um, she has grown up to be, um, an artist. So there are a lot of watercolors throughout it and a writer. It's this very like dreamy portrait collection of scenes. Uh, it's one of those books that you can, like, it doesn't matter where you start, you can kind of read snippets here and there. And, um, in terms of movies, since we know you all are movie lovers, there's even a short chapter about her love of Jaws and how uh, the movie is different from the book, which I found interesting. Um, and there are photographs of 26 uh, different swimsuits that she used to have over different periods of her life. It's, it's very beautiful and ethereal and dreamy.
1: Very nice. And can you say the name of the book again? Yes. The book is Swimming Studies by Leanne Chapton. Awesome. So what I wanted to recommend this week was a great piece on the NPR Monkey Sea blog by Linda Holmes. And full disclosure, I am also employed by that same organization and am acquainted with her. Um, But she wrote this great piece about romantic comedies and coming to their defense. Her piece was in response to an Atlantic essay saying there are no good romantic comedies anymore. Um, It has to do with contrived plots and... You know, just horrible movies. Um, what Linda was saying is that it's very hard to make a good romantic comedy when everybody knows what's going to happen at the end, which is that they kiss. And so she was arguing that it's not about what the obstacles are; it's about the writing and about the charisma between the two leads. And to stop referring to romantic comedies as rom-coms and chick flicks, and sort of making these really hateful movies like The Ugly Truth and, like, the, the Switch and just these movies where people are really mean to each other. Like, those are not good romantic comedies. So pulling back from the sort of derogatory approach to romantic comedies to sort of relegating them to, like, bad things associated with women. Um, Do you think the key to
0: having a good romantic comedy, uh, like... Yeah, that's such a crappy word. I I think it's just, we need to come up with a better word. But uh, part of having a really good romantic story is having other things going on in the story. Exactly. Like family or work or friends. Because, yeah, that's super boring if it's just like about two people who are about to get together but not quite and then they do.
1: Exactly. 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 So we'll post links to both of the things that we recommended this week. Um, Well, this has been Bonnie and Maude. I'm Eleanor Kagan. And I'm Xenia Yaroche. Please subscribe on iTunes. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr under Bonnie and Maude.